This is a Counterspin Media presentation. Presenting Samantha Edwards Reports. Report number nine. Christchurch mosque attack. The cover-up continues. August 17th, 2017. A 26-year-old man, born and raised in Australia, moved to New Zealand. He had no family in New Zealand and only one friend that he'd met online. His name was yet unknown, but today it is known by all. September 19th, 2017. Despite his lack of verifiable referees, less than five weeks after his arrival in the country, this young man somehow managed to obtain a New Zealand firearms license something that usually takes many months, even for a New Zealand citizen. December 2017. In early December, this man made a police-sanctioned purchase of thousands of rounds of ammunition from a Canterbury ammunitions business, as well as online purchases of thousands of more rounds of ammunition. He also purchased an arsenal of semi-automatic firearms these purchases were police approved, with some appearing to have been made prior to receiving his license. March 15th, 2019. 15 months later, on a day that would become known as New Zealand's darkest day, this man, Brenton Tarrant, would stream live to Facebook as he walked into two Christchurch mosques and committed New Zealand's deadliest mass shooting, killing 51 people in a 19-minute reign of terror. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern called it an unprecedented act of violence and said it can only be described as a terrorist attack. It is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. At least, that's what we were told happened. You see, due to unprecedented and extreme censoring, the truth around this event has proven to be somewhat difficult to determine. Over the following weeks, months and years, many questions would arise from the vestiges of that tragic day. The live stream video of the attack would be the very thing that gave rise to many of those questions. So, the regime acted swiftly to prevent the discussion of certain aspects of that live stream, criminalising the viewing of this video within three days of the event. The chief censor immediately actioned the classification of this live stream as objectionable material, thus making the possession, the sharing or even the viewing of this video a criminal offence, with extraordinarily severe consequences. Consequences that threaten New Zealanders with 14 years imprisonment as well as astronomical fines for even sharing a link to a legal international website or an article that contains any part of this video. Many international websites and even documentaries have addressed the glaring discrepancies in the official narrative of that day. Whilst such content is legal elsewhere, here in New Zealand, access to any such material, 
to any information that stands in contradiction to the official narrative has been deemed illegal and punishable with harsher punitive measure than many other violent crimes. All those who have come forward in an attempt to open the Pandora's box of March 15, 2019 have been shut down by the firm arm of censorship. Paul McNeil, who sold ammunition to Tarrant, requested and delivered a submission to a parliamentary select committee in an attempt to address what he described as serious concerns, particularly around the dubious aspects surrounding the issuing of Tarrant's firearms licence. In his submission, McNeil began to speak of his concern that police knew Tarrant was in possession of military-style semi-automatic firearms when they approved this ammunition's purchase. But at that point, his submission video feed was cut. The regime was making itself very clear. An unrestricted ability to learn the facts and the inevitable ensuing informed conversation would not be tolerated. An environment of freedom to learn and freedom to think, freedom to speak is anathema to the parasitic elite. Such a sharing of information and the facts pertaining to this particular event would very likely cause the emergence of a viewpoint that differed from the official propaganda and that would most certainly not be tolerated. The only emergence that would be tolerated was that of an international celebrity prime minister, an empathetic leader who espouses kindness and demonstratively embraces grieving widows as she deftly slithers her way to the UN. Since then, the truth around the events of March 15, 2019 has not only continued to be suppressed, it has been absolutely forbidden. And the people have been lied to that this new kind of tyranny is for the public's own safety. However, as always, in the face of oppression, the courageous and the integrous have been so, revealed. This is what we're standing for. I will not be silenced. I will fight till there's one last breath in me for the future of our children. A brave few have taken a stand against this tyranny, refused to back down, and refused to be silenced. The pair refused to enter the dock and had to be forcibly moved by security guards. Because it's not our place. We're not cattle. We're not a ship that needs to be plundered. That's what a dock is. We're the captains of our vessels, not them. This is only Act 1. <laughs> you should see the ship coming down the line. Counterspin Media have never shied away from this or any subject that they believe needs to be talked about and as a result, Calvin and Hannah and another member of their team have experienced the almighty kickback that comes to anyone who dares to shine a light on the fabricated official narrative of that day. And they're currently facing the threat of 14 years in prison each 
and $600,000 worth of fines for their courage. However, you may not be aware there's actually another courageous young man who's already serving time for similar charges to what Counterspin are facing. Today, I speak to a friend of this man who's made a video about his friend's story called Whose Platform Is It? which is presently set to be released. This man, Nate, has a good friend called Adam Nuttall and he's made this video in an attempt to spread awareness of the injustice that's been perpetrated on his friend. So, welcome Adam. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Samantha. It's a real honour to be on the show. Well, it's like I've said to you before, Adam, I really admire what you've done here. I think you're very brave. This is a really important subject, so it's great to have you. But anyway, could you please tell us a little bit about this video? What's it called? If you don't sure. Mind. Thanks. So it's called Whose Platform Is It? And essentially it's the story of my good friend Nathan Symington who was sentenced to two and a half years in prison just a few months ago. So he's currently serving two and a half years in Christchurch Men's Prison. And um, it was on two charges. The uh, The main one was uh, knowledge around distribution of objectionable material. Um, so Nathan basically got charged for sharing two links to websites that um, examined Brendan Tarrant's live stream and um, also looked at his manifesto. So he didn't actually share the live stream. He just shared two links to websites that discussed the live stream and had excerpts from it on there. And um, you know, he also had a, a firearms charge. It was um, because he made a, a video shooting a Jacinda campaign sign um, in the lead up to the last election, basically, and um, ended up getting charged for that. So the firearms charge is only 30% of the sentence, and the objectionable material charge is 70% of the sentence. And there's some real critical context to this story that the court has ignored, that the court and the police have ignored. And that's what this video explores, basically. Right. And his sentence being two and a half years, 70% of that, which is a pretty hefty chunk of time for sharing a couple of links, how long were these links up on the screen for? Well, he, he, uh, the original copy of the video showed them for, I think, three seconds at the three end seconds. of the video. Yeah, but they were also listed in the description, like a, like a suggestion for further reading kind mm. of thing in the description mm. to the video. Right. And um, really, really, the story pivots around the content of the video, which is something that the prosecution and the judge ignored. Basically, right. and um, and the, the content of the video relates to another friend of ours, Omar Nabi, who um, who lost his father in the mosque attack, and he has been on a journey since then to get accountability from the New Zealand police and uh, the regime here in New Zealand. And Omar Nate's has? video, Omar right. has, and um, and so part of Omar's journey in seeking accountability and trying to make sense of what happened to his community, basically, um, involved a protest that Omar put together at El Noor Mosque, and he was actually protesting the Prime Minister and the police and dignitaries that were coming to El Noor Mosque as a kind of... Um, 
uh, commemoration or, or, you know, an event. They made an event out of the tragedy. This was a couple of years after. And, um, and so this is why it's called Whose Platform Is It? Um, this was sort of the catch cry for MoMA's protest. And, um, and, and on that day, you know, um, I was there as well. Nathan was there. Um, I live streamed the protest. So there's people out there that will actually remember it. And, um, you know, Nathan uh, took video footage and edited together a video that night. And that's the video that um, had the links at the end of. And that's the video that has resulted in him being imprisoned for two and a half years. And to me, I mean, I've seen a good part of Nate's video. There certainly wasn't anything provocative, nothing insightful at all in it. No. It was just filming his friend's protest and his friend was offended that these so-called dignitaries were making an event out of his tragedy, their tragedy, because yeah, he right. knew a different narrative. So Nate in prison for two and a half years, has he, is he like you? Is he a bit of a troublemaker? <laughs> has he ever had any run-ins with the law before, Adam? Um, no, no, this is Nathan's first offence. And um, you know, Nathan's real, he's a real gentle person, really. Um, so he hasn't really been in trouble. And um, I'm in some ways less of a troublemaker than me, as you put it, you know. But that was so it's joke, really. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if the shoe fits, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was very unfortunate for it to happen to Nate. You know, it has happened yeah. to a really nice guy, a genuinely nice guy. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to support him and proud to be his friend, really. Mm. Nice. So anyway... In your video, whose platform is it, which we're going to have a link to in the description underneath this interview, you talk a fair bit about Brenton Tarrant's gun licence. Can you sort of summarise what the concerns are around this gun licence? Sure. Well, this, um, you know, the subject of how Brenton Tarrant got the arms licence has always been a real contentious point in this. And it's something that the the affected families and the victims and survivors, this is a major point to them as well as um, you know the rest of New Zealand. And it's something that Omar, um, it, it really you know, resonated with Omar. And um, especially after the select committee hearings when um, Paul McNeil, the owner of our Iraqi ammunition, came forward and released the police authorisation form for the sale of uh, 2,300 rounds to Brenton Tarrant. And um, on that, that authorisation form, there is the expiry date of Brenton Tarrant's gun licence. And it shows that Brenton Tarrant, his licence was apparently issued on the 19th of September 2017. And this is really just a few days after he applied for it. And um, this issue has never been properly addressed. At, at the time, uh, Paul McNeil was in the media. Um, they did report on it at the time. And then the Royal Commission just ignored it. They haven't come back to this, never addressed it. The police never responded to it. Well, they basically just said, we have no comment on that, didn't they? That's right. <laughs> I mean, how does that work? What's the point of a Royal Commission if they're not even going to require an actual answer? Um, That's right. 
And indeed, what the police said at the time was that they weren't going to comment because it's before the Royal Commission. And then, of course, the Royal Commission turns around and suppresses all of the evidence for 30 years. And more recently, leading up to the coroner's inquest, the police again have been asked for comment. And now they say, we're not going to comment because it's before the coroner. Exactly. Uh, That's what you call a whitewash, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you're saying Tarrant got his license a few days after applying for it. That's unheard of for a start, right? I mean, usually it takes months. Yeah. But the other really significant thing is that it was that was only less than five weeks after he arrived in the country. So that's just, that shows elements of being an expedited license application, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And everything else we've learnt about the granting of Tarrant's gun licence also shows that it was exceptional case that Brenton Tarrant got special treatment from New Zealand police to obtain his firearms licence. And he he would not have received a firearms licence without the special treatment because he simply didn't actually qualify for it. Nobody else would have got the firearms licence presenting like that. And even if we believe leave the official timeline it was still half the time it was taking everybody else and they acknowledged that they didn't properly vet Tarrant so he's he's got special treatment just bare special treatment and it's never been addressed mm. and as you said even the official narrative is like half the length of time that it would normally take but in your video you've done some really good investigation there that kind of reveals It may well have been a lot shorter than half the length of the usual time, actually. We're talking days, which is just unheard of. That's right, yeah. We're talking um, at the most 19 days. It Mm. depends how much you believe the Royal Commission. Mm. But it it is possible that the the licence was issued on the 19th but not actually sent to Tarrant. And um, we don't actually have any evidence that he used his licence before the 4th of December. Um, But that doesn't mean he didn't have it and we don't have that evidence. But it does show that something has happened here in the granting of the licence that um, perhaps there's some kind of tension in the police force where the higher-ups have granted the licence and then subordinate arms officers have held it back to actually try and do their job because they're not in on this evil Mm. plot, you know what I mean? Yeah. And something fishy's going on. Like, we don't actually know for sure how this yes. happened. So, December, early December, that's when he bought the 2,300 rounds, um, yeah. was it, from Auraki? That's right. That was early December, mid-December, I think. Um, the 4th of December was the first time he used the licence, um, from what we're told. And that was police approved? That's right. Still no questions, you know. Yeah, that's right. And something a lot of people don't realise is there's a lot more ammunition being sold to Brenton Tarrant than the Iraqi ammunition sale. There's actually a whole list of of, um, mail order purchases he's made, totalling thousands of rounds, just multiple times buying a 1,000 rounds here, a 1,000 rounds there, just burning through huge amounts, thousands of dollars worth of ammunition in the months leading up to the attack. And the police never give him a call and say, hey, what's going on here? You know, they just... No, n- never, me. that's right. It's, uh... was, was there a note on his file saying that the vetting hadn't been properly completed? I mean, were there any warning signs on the file? We just don't know.
yeah. this kind of stuff. And of course, the gun license is only one aspect of the whole fishiness around the mosque event. Actually, if you don't mind, Adam, I might just spend a couple of minutes going through a few of the points that are shady, yeah, <laughs> to say sure. the least. Okay, so we've got the fact, that, of course, that there was a week-long police training exercise going on at the time in the area, which involved foreign participants. And that's something we've seen with many other uh, false flag mass shootings internationally. It seems as if the purpose there could be to confuse the first responders so they it just causes disarray. They don't know if people calling in are about a real-world event or, or if it's part of the training exercise. And it also allows cover for things to be set in place, you know, without being detected that might be needed to carry out the attack. And excuses for certain people to be present. Yeah. There's the alleged manifesto by Brenton Tarrant that was clearly not written by a right-wing supremacist at all, but by a left-wing eco-fascist. It talks about wanting the banning of guns, environmental tyranny basically based on the climate lie. The live stream itself was just full of holes, which is why we're not allowed to view it or share it. There's the close proximity firing that strangely doesn't cause the right you know, damage to bodies or clothing, blood coming from the wrong direction, all sorts of strange things that contradict the official narrative. Evidence that Tarrant's being directed at times. Uh, we got the fact that Brenton Tarrant was on social media uh, just a few months before this event from Pakistan talking about beautiful Pakistan and his beautiful Pakistani friends, you know, a strongly Muslim country. And so he clearly didn't seem to hate Muslims then at all. No sign of that. And when he walked up to the mosque door, it's recorded in the live stream that he was greeted with, hello, brother. Uh, the people then didn't flee for their lives, try to get out the windows. It's, it's all a little strange. You know, all things that we should be able to talk about, but we're not allowed to talk about. Then, of course, we've got that video, Three Faces of a Terrorist. Is that what it was called? Three Faces of a, of a Killer? I'm not sure. We're uh, not allowed to watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, legal elsewhere, legal in other parts of the world, but not here. You know, talking about the three players of the same character, basically. And we've got the whole strange sort of, where the heck is he? We're ex expected to believe that he's in some specially designed isolation unit, which of course is extremely convenient that no one will ever lay eyes on him, you know. And of course they didn't want to speak his name from a government level. It's all very convenient. He sought many things from his act of terror, but one was notoriety. And that is why you will never hear me mention his name. He is a terrorist. He is a criminal. He is an extremist. But he will, when I speak, be nameless. My guess is that he was just an expendable operative, or they were, may not even be alive, I don't know. But all these aspects have just been covered over, plus more. And the ones that they couldn't cover over, or that sort of showed themselves, they just covered them with this basically gag order over the entire New Zealand public with heavy threats of fines and imprisonment. Exactly. Uh, just national intimidation on a grand scale. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. It is intimidation. And, you know, some of the holes in the official narrative are huge. Yes. And um, they, 
it's like they can't actually come up with a story that explains all of the evidence. And so they have to resort to intimidation, like Absolutely. like the gangsters that they are, yeah. because that's what's really going on here. And, um, you know, today we had what seems to be a revelation. Um, I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it. But um, as I was leaving for work this morning, I just caught on the radio on Radio New Zealand. There was the incident commander from the police. So the commander on the day was on the radio and he was talking about the evidence that he'd just given at the coroner's inquest that's happening here in Christchurch at the moment. And in that, he was saying that the reason um, that he didn't deploy the police into the mosque sooner is because he was sitting back and watching the live stream and narrating over the comms as to what was happening on the live stream and he didn't realise that it wasn't actually live. Wasn't live? So they seem to be claiming that the live stream wasn't live and that while they were watching Brenton Tarrant, well, anybody who was watching the live stream was watching him shoot people in the mosque, he had already moved on and that it was actually safe at that point for them to go in. And they were claiming that this is why they didn't enter the mosque. So there's no explanation as to how, technically how, Brenton Tarrant managed to do a delayed live stream by himself because they are still claiming that he acted alone. And all I could think of was Brenton Tarrant hooning through traffic like you know the mad bastard he was finishing the filming and you look over to the passenger seat and there's a laptop with like open broadcasting software (laughs) or something sitting there and he's madly doing the tech stuff on the side in the middle of this incident I mean it just boggles the mind as to how how that would be possible or was there you know somebody else must have managed a delayed stream and then was it was it edited? I mean, I remember watching the stream at the time and and there was a piece of audio that just stuck out to me, like it really stuck out that that camera that's recording that audio up to that point just couldn't have heard that at that volume. Right. It just seemed so completely out of place to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now today there's a revelation that the live stream wasn't live. I mean, have any of you heard that before? No. Seems out, outrageous. Yeah, I certainly haven't heard that one before. But, you know, it, it makes me actually think of other possible motivations for Winston's recent comments about the mosque event and his sudden grievance that something happened that day that he wasn't notified about. Oh, seriously, I, I can't handle it. <laughs> He's like Deputy Prime Minister, Foreign Minister at the time, but he didn't know what was going on again. Well, Winston, Winston <laughs> never knows what's actually going on when no. it counts, does he? <laughs> no. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing, yeah. I wonder what it is that he does all day. He must just sit around the beehive <laughs> playing Candy Crush Saga on his phone or something. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But this is what this is setting up. Him doing what he's doing now, it's setting up the opportunity for this ridic- ridiculous narratives to be put in place. And we do expect that from him because, you know, he's just doing his predictable pin the blame on the departed, this time it's Jacinda, routine that he always does. Yeah, that's Keeping right. Keeping his ha- hands clean. When Winston's um, just a tool of the regime. <laughs> he's just a tool full stop. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we're not, we're not meant to talk about it. We're not meant to talk about this tragedy and what happened and the information around mm. it. You know? Yeah. 
It, yeah. it does frustrate me that it works on a lot of seemingly awake people. They are pacified by this stuff and they do That's right. yeah. believe yeah. that the government's dealing with it. But no, they do. they're definitely and not, I, not yeah, dealing with it. Yeah, I think there's um, you know, a bit of a cultural divide going on as well here because mm -hmm. the, the community that this happened to, um, you know, they're an immigrant community. There's lots of refugees amongst them. Lots of them have come from war-torn countries and authoritarian yeah. regimes, mm. and they speak different languages. They have different religions. They have different customs and, and you know, social yeah. um, etiquette and stuff, and they're not a particularly well-integrated community. This yeah. is just the reality of it, really. It's, it's as if they took advantage of the fact that they were not as enfranchised in our community. That's right, yes. You know? Yes, and so this idea that we're not meant to talk about it because it's somehow offensive to them is, is a tension that the government is really using. It's a lie. Right? And it's, a, it's a lie. And mm. um, I'll just read you something from... Um, so this is a news article. This is from, I believe it was ABC News. I can't, I'm not actually sure. This is about the families and the coronal inquest, okay? Um, so I quote, as well as specific information on the cause and circumstances of death, there is a desire among families to understand more about why the shooter was able to obtain a gun license and how the police determined he acted alone. One of the issues tabled in the scope hearing is in regards to did the terrorist have direct assistance from another person present on that day? You know, these are the questions that the mm -hmm. families are asking. Mm -hmm. They don't believe Brenton Tarrant acted alone. There is so much evidence mm -hmm. that he didn't act alone. And so they, they actually don't believe this lie that he didn't act alone. And they're mm -hmm. not satisfied with the, the police conduct in arming Tarrant. So and, and they what, look at all these issues. Yeah. And that's what Omar's protest was about. And I believe that's why they want that video that Nate made extinguished. Because Omar's standing there with signs with facts and data written on them and he's ready to talk about this stuff, you know. So, and there, there's a real, sorry, there's a real big element of them being embarrassed by Omar as well. You know, they they feel that they had this moral superiority to go onto the mosque and make a show of it and, and you know, oh, take the moral high ground. And me. then there's Omar outside embarrassing them, which is exactly what he was. Andrew Little did look embarrassed. He didn't want they to They were embarrassed. They were squirming. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so an element of it feels like like childish revenge, actually. Actually, while we're playing this little bit here, Adam, I'll just let this run so the viewers can get a little taste of the power of Omar's protesting. You know, there was a really heartbreaking point in your video when you were talking to Omar, actually, and he said that his community was scared. I mean, that was the word he used too scared to talk about the event that he says resulted in the death of 50 of his family members. That's what he calls them. Here's the video. It's a real danger. And um, knowing you can be jailed for it, knowing you could be uh, taken to court for talking about it, 
most of my own community members feel scared. How should we approach it? Uh, that is just so wrong. All these yeah. years later that they're still too scared to even talk about that day because they know, like you said, you could go to prison for that. Oh. And you've got to remember, you know, lots of them have come from authoritarian regimes. So they don't have the background of New Zealand that a we do, the speech. free yeah. country that it once was, yeah. that mm. they were sold this lie, mm. essentially. So there is this growing sense of dismay and, you know, a real tragic. responsibility for the rest of us to, you know, back them up and keep yes. the subject alive and not shrink yes. away from the discussion. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it seems as if they are in the mindset they better not speak, you know, like Omar said, they're scared, too scared to speak about it. And that's just tragic to see that. We need a public outcry on their behalf. Yeah. What happened that that's day? That's right. On Nate's behalf for what happened to him. And also, if they dare go near Calvin and Hannah, as, as you know, they're up on similar charges. Well, there will be a monumental outcry. I can promise you that if that happens. Yeah, well, this is, this is really a pivotal issue um, in this country in our constitutional crisis as to whether or not the government can conspire to murder 51 of its yeah. own citizens and then have evidence of this blatantly right publicly available and then just take the stance of sit down, shut up, peasant. Absolutely. You're not allowed to talk about it. You know, if we let them get away with this, it's kind of game over. Yeah. We're not even allowed to muse upon it and we're certainly not allowed to learn yeah. about it. I mean, so reminiscent of the burning of the books, you know, it is. what a link. People might go and actually start to think for themselves Yeah. and come up with their That's own conclusions. Right. Well, we can't have that. <laughs> yeah. There really, yeah, there really is a deeper tragedy here with you know, victims being re-victimised, yes, really, yeah. by the system and ongoing yeah. trauma with this. can't imagine. I guess that, that, you know, tension was something I tried to convey in this film and mm -hmm. that that reality was something that I really tried to share and it was quite, you know, it was a difficult journey for me and, and this yeah. certainly had quite an impact on me. And, I mean, you found it quite moving working on this as well and um you know i just say to people out there that you know if you if you watch this and you find it it's a, a bit of a powerful watch and it has a bit of an effect on you and like us you think it's important then i just really ask people to you know share it and get it out there and do everything you can to get it some traction because mm. you know this isn't i'm not backed by any kind of organization there's no real network to to back us up, there's no advertising budget, there's nothing. <laughs> it will be suppressed by the algorithms it's as sure much will. as they can. They yeah, will try and shut it down. So share it. You've just yeah. It's not just about Nate. It's about all the others affected that day and in the future if this kind of thing continues. And if they you know, if they can treat Omar and the other victims with this kind of disrespect, if they can treat Nate with this kind of disrespect, I mean, they really don't have any respect for any no. of us, and that's where, that's it, right. where it's at in this country. That's right. 
And yeah, so to tolerate it in any way and not fight against it is to basically allow this to be our children's future. You know, where you just don't speak the truth because they'll get you if you do. Exactly. I mean, we have to start dismantling the narrative that they've put out there. I mean, I thought it was a massive red flag right from the start when they said, if you even talk about the stuff, we're going to send you to prison forever and take all your money. You know, like Calvin and Hannah, $600,000 worth of fines. That kind of heaviness for sharing a link, that's a massive red flag. You know, what, what are they trying to hide here? <laughs> it's, it's pretty obvious. But a lot of people bought this lie that it was because of the graphic violence. Well, if anyone still believes that, they need to take a look at what they're happy for you to view in regards to the Israel-Palestine contrived conflict. Children, they're happy for you to see that. That's great. In high definition. Yes, and it's race-related. So it's got nothing to do with protecting people's delicate eyes. It's about protecting their interests. And I have a sneaking suspicion it also has something to do with disarming the nation, considering that it all just happened to take place on the eve of the most severe totalitarian takeover this nation has ever seen. And that it all just happened to result in the disarmament of the nation. You know, they knew That's that right. many wouldn't fall for the COVID scam that was about to come into the country and that they might need to disarm those people. So, you know... And when you, know, when you look at the risks that they're taking to yeah. cover this up, which is really what's going on here, there's some quite extraordinary risks. I mean, some of yeah. these, these pieces of evidence that don't add up are just glaringly obvious. And you have to ask yourself what is motivating them to take such big risks to cover this up. There, there appears to be a very real, very deep vulnerability here for the regime, mm. like mm. something really right. dark, really sinister has gone down, and if people actually knew the mm. details, they would never, ever forgive mm. them. Yeah. I actually take that as an encouragement when I see that because I think, oh, you're worried so this is a vulnerable spot for you? Okay, thanks for pointing that out. Let's, let's open that up a exactly. bit. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, they are, you know, they are acting like a guilty man. That's the thing. <laughs> An innocent man protests their innocence. Yeah. And they say, but look at this and look at this, exactly. but this aspect. And they try and explain because they're innocent, you know, whereas a guilty man yeah. just shuts up. It holds his fist up and says, don't you dare ask me any more yeah. questions. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And gets his lawyer to send you a letter to try and <laughs> yeah. shut you down. Yes. <laughs> anyway, let's just have a little chat about the firearms charge portion of Nate's sentence. Uh, like you said, 30% of his sentence was because of the firearms charge. Now, this was something to do with shooting at a campaign, si campaign signs, and that's what made the mainstream media, of course. Didn't paint that's him right. in a good light. So can you just briefly explain what that was about, Adam? Sure. So this was, um, you know, in the 2020 sort of days um, leading up to the election um, in that year. So there was the whole post-lockdown sort of tension and stuff like that. And, you know, Nate made a video that, um, you know, in my view was in poor taste. I'm sure other people would agree. But um, you've also got to remember material like Kathy Griffith doing the decapitated Trump head thing and um or the project where they're you know assassinating the little orange man 
with a bug zapper. That's right. That's just a laugh, apparently. Exactly. Well, exactly. Perfectly acceptable. You know, lots of Nate's material was was sort of um, you know from the meme culture and right. you know memeing ideas. So it really was, in some ways, more of a meme. And what was it? Can you just explain the actual video? So the, the video actually just showed campaign signs and then um, being shot through, bullets being shot through them. So you just see holes appearing in the campaign signs. Okay, and that was pretty much it. driving down the street or no, this in so a controlled this, environment? No, um, so this is in a controlled environment. In fact, the, the police described it as um, in a shooting range-like environment. So this was safely done and it was done with legally held guns. Mm. Um, you know, Nate's only real mistake was that um, he didn't get a firearms holder that was willing to come forward and, right. and prove that it, it was okay. lawful yeah. at the time, which is fair enough because you'd probably lose your arms license. Yeah. So there was, again, he wasn't putting out a call for anyone to commit no. violence. That didn't happen, did no. it? But it, no, but it is a right. great warning to not fall into traps. I mean, <laughs> unfortunately, they will grab that and use that as a smokescreen to hide from what you're actually speaking about. That's right. And they will bury you on it if you give them half the chance. So we have to walk, you know, really intelligently and carefully. Yeah. And there is, you know, there is a human tendency to want to rage against the machine and yeah. fight back and, and break things to try and you know, solve this problem. And you really need just to step back and you know realize that there's just there isn't anything in this world that you can solve by hitting it. You know, we, we need to, um, you know, find our humanity and just be better people and conduct ourselves better in the other side and just show a better way of living really and that's the way forward so it's just not the kind of material that's helpful we don't need to go there no. because we have the truth and the truth is powerful that's right yeah it's like the light is a lot more powerful than the dark it's just well darkness is nothing isn't it it has no energy we have that so we have to have faith that if we just keep persevering persevering that the truth will out itself that's right. And that yeah. we just don't fall in their traps or step on their landmines along the way. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, that trap, the trap of the shooting of the Cindy signs, he would have survived that. He would have stayed out of jail. It really wasn't yeah. enough to send him away. And it's the objectionable material charge that's resulted in him being imprisoned. Yeah. Exactly. Important point. Yeah. Now, right near the end of your video, there was something that Nate said in a recorded phone call from the prison, which I thought was great. He said, we've got to obey the laws, but we shouldn't be intimidated by them into not speaking the truth. And he said, we have to speak boldly and courageously. I thought that was fantastic. So, Nate, if you ever get to watch or listen to this, it's been an honor to be a part of sharing your story. And there is a purpose to what you're going through. This is going to get people talking about something very important. And he is hoping that one day that this will lead to, like Liz Gunn was saying about the COVID scam, she said, we need a criminal investigation, not a royal commission, a full criminal investigation. That's what we need here too for this event. There's more than sufficient evidence to warrant a criminal investigation. And there's more than sufficient concern to warrant such an investigation. So no, we won't be accepting any whitewashed inquiry. Thank you very much. 51 people died that day, and we need a criminal investigation, nothing less. 
So anyway, uh, before we go, Adam, is there anything else you wanted to add? Anything else you wanted to say? Um, I guess really just uh, gratitude from me, gratitude um, for Nate. Um, yeah, he's a fantastic friend, and um, and for Omar, likewise, Omar's a fantastic friend, and and yourself, and helping to bring this story out. And um, you know, they feel the same when I um, you know, went and saw Nate in prison um, a couple of weekends ago, and yeah, he thanked me for telling the story, and I thanked him for being the story. You know, and cool. when when I interviewed Omar, you know, Omar thanked me and and I thank to Omar and and it's the same with mm-hmm. with your help on this project which has been fantastic actually um you know Samantha's done really well in collaborating on this project it's just been a really good good input you know I was running out of energy at the end there as you do and Samantha's come in with fresh eyes and really helped make it a reality so you know we're all incredibly grateful really Uh, It's an honour to be able to talk about this subject because there's so many people that do know and can see the truth about that day. So to have an opportunity to bring any part of that out, I'm very grateful for that. (laughs) But hey, thank you, Adam, for what you've done for Nate and for not allowing him to just vanish behind those prison walls and having the guts and determination to keep speaking what he was speaking about in his place essentially. So on that note, I might close this up with a few words from Nate from Christchurch Men's Prison. I think that'd be a good way to see this out. And again, thanks for your tremendous effort on the Whose Platform Is It video. And thank you for coming here today and having this conversation with me. Yeah, thank you, Samantha. You know, it's been a real honour to come on and get interviewed with you and and just, you know, work with you on this project. So, yeah, thanks, Hate. Very grateful, very grateful, yeah. Excellent. So, anyone watching this, Adam's link to his video is in the description below. Please share and please let's start talking about what really happened on the 15th of March 2019. tragedy and rather than shunning and turning a blind eye we must implore empower and enfranchise those who question the official narrative especially those within the muslim community who still question and seek closure there remain unanswered questions which need to be properly and honestly addressed finally i encourage everyone to be aware of and follow local laws and regulations but not to be intimidated or threatened by local law enforcement or those who think that censorship and imprisonment are the way to solve problems. We should learn from history and be courageous and bold in our convictions so that justice can truly be served. Counterspinmedia.com 